I chuck it like you were sink bow in it, yeah? Uh, I, I really don't mind. You hit me once, I hit you back. He's bowling like my Auntie Annie when she'd had too much sherry to drink. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Pie Checkers Cricket Podcast. This is Vivek along with my fellow Pie Checkers, Sai. Now today, we are joined by someone who has been called a rising star of cricket journalism. He's currently a sports journalist at Daily Telegraph has written for ESPN Crick Info, The Economist, New York Times, on topics running from business and politics or sports, corruption, sports globalization, sports science, uh, technology, analytics, and the list goes on. And he has been named the Christopher Martin Jenkins Young Journalist of the Year 2015. He has co-authored uh, the book Cricket 2.0, which has been awarded the Wisdom Book of the Year 2020. Harsha Bogli says he is one of the torchbearers of the future and someone we should be listening to. Tim Vigmo, welcome to Pie Checkers Cricket Podcast. Hello, thanks for that very kind introduction. It must uh, it must be great having cricket back after so long. Yeah, it's fantastic. Obviously, it's very surreal. I was in Sri Lanka, actually, when, when the England tour got uh, there got cancelled so I got there on uh, to, to, uh, the day before a warm-up and the first day of the warm-up happened and the second end of the warm-up the tour was cancelled I had to get a mad flight back through Dubai which felt like kind of something out of out of a movie or something um, so very, <laughs> very very surreal um, and it's been obviously a very tough th- few months for, for everybody um, and it's nice to have cricket back and it um, although it's obviously weird without crowds and stuff it, you know it, it does feel like a contest there's, there's a kind of good competitive edge, edge to it so it's yeah, it feels more like Test cricket than I think a lot of people thought it would. Yeah, we have we we ourselves have been had it felt an eternity waiting for cricket to happen. Only so much can we uh, watch old videos, watch uh, old cricket highlights. So yeah, it's great to have live cricket back. Um, and uh, before we start, so uh, congratulations on winning the Vision Book of the Year award. Oh yeah, thank thanks so much. It was a nice surprise for for um, <laughs> Freddie Wild, my co-author, and and, and I. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Tim, why T Twenty? Why not? Why not something about Test cricket or ODI cricket or a biography or of of of, of one of the players? Why T Twenty cricket? What made you write about this T Twenty cricket? So I think we wanted to to try and do something that hadn't been done before, and. You know, we actually wanted to kind of read a book on T20, but there wasn't really a, a book there. So we decided to try and write it out ourselves. I think it was really exciting and challenging as well, but really exciting to define a topic, you know, such a big topic, but one that was no real writing on uh, at, at the book level anyway. So it was a bit of a kind of blank canvas and a real exercise in working out what was important and how we would got from, you know, kind of stumbling into this in 2003 to where we are now, where it's, you know, not just the most popular form of cricket, but also like other sports around the world are envious of how cricket's been able to reinvent himself in such a successful way. Um, and just, yeah, he wants to bring alive the, the stories and, and yeah, a sense of the kind of remarkable journey. You know, one interesting aspect of uh, how Freddie and you have, dis- have uh, termed T20 cricket, you said that T20 is a new sport. It's not just a... Uh, an offshoot of cricket or a format, a different format. It's an entirely new sport, both from economics, from, from uh, you know, player psychology, etc. What is it, you know, what is it that kind of helped, uh, drove you to term it as, a, as its own sport? 
So I think the really interesting thing is if you look at T20 through the prism of traditional cricket, i.e. tests and kind of ODIs now, lots of your conclusions kind of are, are wrong because it's not actually that helpful for prism to, to see it through. So the very simple thing is like the batting average. You know, that is test cricket. You see a batsman's average and it basically tells you how, how good a player they are. But in T20, it doesn't really tell, tell you anything that, very much at all about how valuable they are because you get players who average a lot but score very slowly and can actually be dra- a drag on their team and make a negative contribution. So that that kind of that illuminates the point. And if you look at it, you're kind of only seeing half of the game if you see it as just like a shorter format of the other games. Whereas if you if you kind of say this is a whole new sport, we need a new way to analyze it, a new way to think about it, that probably that can shed more much more light on it. Sense. Interesting. Interesting. Um so um uh, Freddie, if we get, start with the book, in the first chapter, you call it uh, Never Fear the Air. And uh, if I take that and if I look at the numbers, Gale uh, has 22 T20 centuries and the next best is someone who is in the single, single digits. Uh, and he was the one who started off the first T20 World Cup, first match he blasted his way to a T20 century. Even then, I think people remember McCullum's uh, censuring the first IPL game. Um, is it fair to say that it is Brendan McCullum and his high risk, never fear the air, as you have called it, um, uh, attitude to batting, which has defined this decade, the decade which has just passed by? Would that be a fair comment to say? It's, it's a very interesting point. Um, so that 158 was clearly, it was a kind of seminal innings for cricket history because it's it's obviously the first day of the IPL and and it shows just what's possible in, in T20. And actually, very few players have still scored more than 158, even now. You know, the top score is Gale's 175. So that 158 has really has done incredibly well. And I think it's, yeah, it shows that what's possible by, by what McCullum always says is that like not fearing risks, not fearing the idea of, of getting out. And we see this again and again in, in T20 that players, the batsmen have done very well in the longer formats. They just cannot, cannot quite retrain their brains almost enough to be like, actually our wickets matter a lot, a lot less in T20. So the optimal way to play is to be so much more aggressive and embrace failure as, as part of the game. And McCollum can do that. And I so, so to answer your question, it, Maybe it should have defined the first decade, but I'm not sure it always does because so many bats do really, really struggle with, with the idea of kind of accepting that failure is wild into the format and wild into the way you're, you're meant to play. So it's very easy to, you know, to knock your way to 30 of 25, which sounds like a reasonable score, but actually might might be a negative drag on the team. And we see this uh, with the Junker Rahane's kind of innings in the semi-final of the World Cup in 2016, he gets 42 off, off 35. Yeah. And it sounds like a, you know, in normal terms, it sounds like a good a good contribution. But um, in the context of the game, you know, he scores under seven runs and over. The average run rate for everyone else in that, over is 11, uh, in everyone else in that game is 11 runs and over. So he's scoring at four runs and over less than, than everyone else. And that, that shows the dangers of batting in a more traditional way and through traditional lens in, in T20. Great. Um, then if you look at uh, at data as analytics which is now kind of uh, has is there everywhere in our uh, working environment and cricket has been has not been insulated to it uh, if you look at if i take 
step back and look at 2015 world cup when england has bowed out of the cricket world cup after being beaten by bangladesh and one of the uh, somewhere uh, uh, the line came out that when we had when the pressers asked uh, the peter moose what do you think is one of the reasons uh, to lo- uh, for you to bow out so early in the world cup he said we may have to look at the data and there was a huge huge backlash which he had to face and then we were uh, we reading somewhere where when graham swan retired he said that uh, after the 2011 quarter final uh, the 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 coaching staff had told in between the uh, the between the innings break and he said they said that jonathan trot who scored around 80 odd in 115 balls was the perfect one day innings and uh, the england scored around 229 for six wickets and uh, sri lanka chased that down under 40 overs with no wickets uh, basically no wickets and then we have when it, and then we move on to ipl and if you see uh, we had the kkr analyst telling gambhir that during the auction that we need to pick up rashid khan he we need to have him in our team he is going to be of great value and gambhir said we don't require him and as it happened that uh, rashid khan got gambhir out in the first over uh, yeah and he then kind of went and told anas you know what you made a you made the right call and that's the one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum is where we see ian morgan ian morgan taking a lot of insights from the data he uses that to kind of make sense of what are the strategies which they are going to uh, have in place what is the approach they are going to have in place and he understands the fact that not everybody uh, may understand data or know how to use the data so going forward um, do we see that apart the leadership team and leadership team apart from having man management skills and batting skills bowling skills need to know how to use data would that become a criteria to for selecting uh, 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 captains coaches uh, and all yeah i think to some extent it, it already is um obviously t- t20 compared to long form cricket basically it lends itself so much better to data because you have you have more matches so you have a bigger sample size and then you, within those matches there's fewer different scenarios so you can actually see you know test cricket is very hard to see you know how does a batsman perform you know after 40 overs in england against spin you know the sub size of that will be tiny um whereas you know in t20 you can say okay how does this batsman do when he's in the 16 centimeter over against leg spin or left arm spin or right arm pace so you can actually get build a proper build a proper sample size to sort of analyze and help you answer that question i think i think most captains now are using most teams and captains are using data it's obviously about how you you use it and retaining you know human human instinct human judgment as well um, but we saw with molten sultans in the last season of the PSL um they had uh, Nathan Lehman the England team analyst he was kind of on secondment there and they had a signaling um system from the sidelines to the captain to sort of tell them what what were the best options and they didn't always go with that best option but it was kind of useful information to have um when making that final decision um so clearly it's going to become it is already is very important but it's going to become more and more important and the you know the, the key is to to use it in a way that simplifies and clarifies rather than kind of clutters and obviously you can have tons of numbers that don't really tell you anything so it's about actionable numbers that that you can you use to inform um but yeah we we will see more more and more of that and more and more of that 
of you know data directly leading to to bowling changes to change in batting order you know a, a huge thing is, is matchups of course so teams try and get the best batsmen to face certain bowlers they try and get the best bowlers to face certain batsmen as well and i think we'll see that used more and more in a kind of i think there's a room for that to be used much more interestingly so you know if you have a, a leg spinner bowling very well in, in the middle overs maybe you have a number eight or number nine whose wicket again is not very valuable to you but he's a kind of batsman who can just even hit 10 off and over off him and if he gets out that's actually quite a useful contribution in the middle overs and then we can see that sort of thing I mean, that that's similar to the logic of sooner Ryan's an opener which happened with uh with Kolkata Knight Riders and has been really phenomenally successful. And then that's been a window into the, the wider point I keep talking about, about how teams have overvalued their wickets in T20 and there's actually scope for finding your wickets less highly and you should, on average, score more runs. Sure. I think analytics, uh, you know, the analytics revolution in perhaps started in other sports before it came into cricket. Obviously, Definitely. so you, you know, even if you look at uh, something like uh, American sports and baseball, uh, perhaps Moneyball was the you know the first concept of using analytics and uh, assessing players on advanced metrics rather than traditional metrics to to uh, identify players who are undervalued. Um, that seems like something that can translate into franchise cricket, but you know when you're doing international cricket selections. You don't really need to assess whether uh, the cost of a player is commensurate with the uh, with the performance that they're putting through. You're just looking at performance. So, does analytics really have that big a role to play going forward in international cricket, or is it something that is going to remain uh, firmly rooted in franchise cricket? So, you're, you're spot on there that analytics is more useful in franchise cricket because if the question is is player A better than player B you you can probably answer that pretty well from your cricket knowledge. If the question is how much better is player A than player B in financial terms, how much more should you justify paying for him? That's a much, much harder question and that and and therefore analysis is more useful there. But I don't think that means analysis is not useful in, in international cricket. So we saw in the World T twenty final but last time twenty sixteen uh, England open bowling with Joe Root, and that was because they spotted that it was a good match against Chris Gale and Joe Root against two, two wickets in the first over. So that was very good use of of a simple strategy, but it was it worked worked very well. I think another strategy, I think another trend we're seeing in international cricket is it, teams are trying to get that balance right between prioritizing their batting and their and their bowling and um, we generally see that t20 you must 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 have five good bowlers and if you only have the kind of old school odi strategy which is having four four proper bowlers and maybe you you model through with a few guys in the middle overs well that that doesn't work at all in t20 and the reason is it's, it's easier to hide or historically it's been easier to hide overs in odi cricket because batsmen have reined themselves in in the middle overs whereas in t20 you don't really get bowled out so there's no need to rein yourself in so actually uh those 20% of overs from a fifth bowler can be even more expensive proportionally in T20 than in, than in ODI cricket often. Um, no, so there absolutely is, is, is scope for analysis to be used more in, in international T20. I think another, another issue is actually if you, if you kind of look at the way teams play, so most teams still play a bit too defensively and they, and they with their, batting and they do that in a way that reduces the scope for them to be embarrassed basically so if you're if you're a team you generally especially if you're the underdog team you're better off and you say you're batting first you're better off being very gung-ho in your in your batting generally 
and you're risking being bowled out for fewer but rather than just kind of get to a middling 140 which if you're a weaker team will, will lose you nine games out of ten you're, you're better off actually trying to go for 160 170 even if you risk you know once i'm out of three or four you would bowl out for 80 and that'll be humiliating but it's accepting that that risk that's inherent in it that's, that's, that's difficult because the sample of international cricket is still pretty small. There's not that much played. So if you were to take that approach to a World T20 and you were to be bowled out for 80 in a game or two, well, yeah, captain coach would probably be getting the sack. <laughs> I, I, I think the point about risk is uh, you know, a concept that you bring out very well in, in, in your book. Um, you mentioned risk and you know, power hitting ability as a key concepts or key, uh, you know, key strengths of any good batsman in, in T20 cricket. Um, how do you use analytics to evaluate risk-taking ability or how do you use analytics to determine that this is a, a power hitter who can succeed in this day and age? Well, I suppose you, you, you look at just the quality, very similar quality of, of their, their innings and you know, their output, i.e. their average and their strike rate. But you obviously try and contextualize that against the quality of, of their opponents and you also try and try and assess how they do against certain types of bowling. So if you have a a World Cup, you know, in very spin-friendly conditions and the, the batsman is very good against certain types of medium pace and they struggle against spin, well, that should be a red flag. So we see this sometimes actually with players in the, the big bash in Australia where there's not many spinners and then you can, some batsmen there do terrifically on, you know, what are pretty good batting wickets and you're generally facing a lot of pace bowling. So Darcy Short would be a good recent example. So he does fantastically in the big bash. And then he goes, to, he doesn't play a lot of spin. When he does, he doesn't do great. But it, there's just not a lot of high quality spin. Um, and then he goes to the IPL and it's a different ball game altogether. I think that's actually where analysis can be very, very useful. So you can say, well, how transferable are a guy's performances in one league to another? Because, you know, di- leagues have very different characteristics in terms of, you know, average scores. Uh, percent proportion of, of pace and, and spin bold um, and if you can use analytics smartly you can find guys who are more likely to transfer over um, but yeah if you do well in South Africa or Australian domestic competition you might not be facing a lot of spin so teams need to be quite smart there before signing a player in the IPL but the, the, the flip side of that is if you're a team in the big bash and someone does very well in South Africa well that Potentially, that, that can be a better indication of their quality than someone doing very well and um, of, of their likelihood to perform in the Big Bash than someone doing very well in the Pakistan Super League, say, where they might have played against more spin or whatever. So, yeah, that, that's a very important issue for, for teams teams to grapple with. And it's it's difficult, but teams are trying to, to answer that question. Sure. Um, so power hitting and sixes are one of the most important things in cricket from an entertainment perspective. But what makes cricket a contest are the quality of bowlers. And T20, uh, from that perspective, may uh, would probably have a lot of bowlers which make it, are, are doing very well. But if you look at it from a broader perspective... Um, we see batsmen making that uh, kind of uh, progress from T20 to ODI to Test cricket. Uh, we have David Warner, Josh Butler, Rishabh Pant to some extent, though yet to prove himself. But he has kind of they have made those, uh, those that progress. If I look at bowlers, uh, Tim, the only one who comes to mind who has been successful and world class in all conditions right now is Bumrah, Jasprit Bumrah. And that of, for me, who likes test cricket, I'm like, I like test cricket, what test cricket brings, the contest, and so on and so forth. But 
I, I want why can't I see more bowlers you know making those that that progress or that transition yeah because it's a really good point so if you look at the, the top 10 bowlers in T20 cricket today on the the world, world rankings the only ones the only player who is a test regular is Rashid Khan and he's only played four test matches because I just started in, in test cricket the other guys um of, of whom nine, of whom nine, nine are actually spin bowlers, and uh, none of the others are regulars in, in their test teams at all. Um, so that just show how different the the skills. I think the skills required as a bowler, especially a spinner in two twenty, are so different um, from that in, in test cricket. You know, you have the old thing of predictability in test cricket, being able to hit a length, the same length again and again. That's generally a massive strength, whether it's for an off spinner or for a right arm pace ball. Predictability in T20 cricket is, is a, it's a huge negative because it means batsmen can, can line you up and, you know, and know where the ball is going to go. And I, and I think that's, that's a huge, huge challenge. And you have the physiological thing where bowlers... There's limits on how much bowlers can bowl, much more than how much batsmen can bat. You know, batsmen in the nets can they, they can they can face probably ten times more balls than bowlers can bowl for their kind of a serious risk of injury. So that does give batsmen an advantage. But that that said, I think it is still very difficult for batsmen as well. You need to be really excellent to succeed across across formats as as a batsman as a batsman too. I think we're seeing traditional kind of classical test batsmen. We see. Even Joe, Joe Root's a good example, you know, terrific player in Test cricket, but he just hasn't been able to play a lot of T20. And so when he last played proper T20, he played a big bash in 2018-19, and he really, really struggled. He was kind of a fish out of water. Um, but we've seen with Kane Williamson, with Steve Smith recently, the fantastic Test players who have evolved their get looks like they've evolved their games in T20. So they've, but they are so good. And if you're, if you're that next level of player down, still a very good test player without being, you know, one of the absolute best in the world, it's just so tricky to to transfer yeah. over. Um, we had this interesting kind of paradox where the players from the bigger country, bigger countries who play more test cricket, it's actually probably harder to transfer because there's just less time. So if West Indies, West Indies play, you know, five, six, six tests a year, whereas England are playing twice, twice as many. So for English players who are test regulars, very difficult to get enough game time and enough kind of exposure to T20 leagues to be able to, to keep keep evolving. But I think, I do think that that trend of very, very few players being cross-format, that will become even more extreme in, in the years ahead. Just just not enough time to practice all the formats and the skills are and the, the skills are becoming more and more divergent. So it's going to become really, even harder to thrive across all three forms. So it probably uh, five years down the line, probably we'll have absolutely separate 11 member team or test match 11 would be very very different from a probably a t20 11 uh would that yeah is that well, how I'd, it would probably unfold i'd never say never because you're gonna you know a fair at coley will still will, and a jasper brimmer are two two players you've named there but yeah but it might be one or two in a, in a 15 man squad of test regulars yeah. as well yeah. um so you, you almost get to the argument there of if these are these are basically separate sports but now they're, if they have separate players that's kind of one to watch a little down the line. Uh, fair enough. Uh, I just want to pick up one point which you have mentioned in the book. Like you say, uh, Richards had, um, uh, uh, IVA Richards, uh, the great uh, West Indian batsman, had said that being aggressive is sometimes being more complex than being defensive. So, I mean, if that is the case, I think the bat, 
the batting quality should have improved because people are more in a way batting quality has improved but and it hasn't kind of impacted the run rates and the way we are going about the general brand of cricket that we are playing but it's just that because i am a test cricket <laughs> enthusiastic if i can say that i am not seeing people being able to you know if they need to bat one whole day in test cricket to save a match i am not seeing that i mean if it was the 90s we had uh, uh, michael othertan from uk we had uh, we had steve or from australia but they were batting but nowadays the, the and there now it would be an odd innings by probably onusman khwaja or so on and so forth but just using that logic i am not able to see that kind of innings being played in test cricket well i think one reason for that is the bowling the quality of bowling test cricket right now is unbelievably good you know we're in a, a great era of bowling every team has fantastic fast bowlers basically so it's incredibly difficult to, to bat and you know the balls you know we're seeing a lot of sea movement off pitches i think batsmen are also yeah they are struggling because that that need that need to shift mindset from hitting the balls hard as you can to batting time that is very difficult and that's why we're seeing more probably more specialist players in, in test cricket, more specialist batsmen in, in test cricket as well. Um, yeah, it, like it, it is, the skills are, are so different. The bowling is very good. But we do still, you know, we still see the odd player who can bat time. I think, you know, we've got, you know, people like Colleen Pajara from India. You've got Kane Williamson, obviously Steve Smith, Mars Labashain. These guys can, can bat serious time. Yeah. So it's not... I think sometimes people make it more exaggerated than it is, but um, yeah, I think that that is that that's been a shift in the game. We're seeing obviously fewer tests go to five days. It, obviously, because batting is harder generally, there's fewer tests where the fourth innings is about batting to save to to secure a draw. You know, normally it's now it's fourth innings is do you win or do or do you lose? It's it's not really you, fewer and fewer times unless there's rain involved. You see a team you know needing to bat hundred overs. 100 plus overs in the last innings when they've only, they haven't got a chance of winning, they're only trying to save the game. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Say? Yeah, um, you know, I, you talk a lot about uh, the comparison or the contrasting fortunes of uh, RCB and CSK in your book. Uh, you know, that, and obviously, as uh, Indian cricket fans and IPL fans, uh, I think that's a very clear case study on what to do right and what, what not to do uh, to create a successful yeah. franchise. Uh, you know, on paper, RCB has constantly had the biggest stars in T20 cricket and international cricket year on year, and they've spent towards that. But there's still that wide gulf between the two teams. Now, you mentioned one of the factors for this might be uh, consistency in selection, in team selection. Uh, we look at Virat Kohli, who has been the, the RCB captain for a while. You know, whatever you might say about Virat Kohli, he's had he's been quite a successful Indian cricket captain. Um, you know, won in Australia in Test series, uh, been to the final four of most of the World Championship tournaments he's played in the limited overs. But he's known for chopping and changing the side every match. Now, that might not have impacted the Indian cricket team negatively, but clearly there's been an impact on RCB that chopping and changing. What's the importance of having a consistent team, especially in a format of the game that you would assume uh, people would be coming in and out all the time just because of the, you know, the 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 speed, the 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 frequency of matches in a tournament. I think a really important thing is that 
because failure is kind of wired into T20, especially for, for, for batsmen, having kind of role clarity and, and peace of mind about your, your role, that actually means you're more likely to accept risk and how you bat and play in a more team-oriented way. If you're always looking over your shoulder about being dropped, well, then you might take a few more balls to play yourself in and give yourself the best chance, but actually that might be detrimental to, to your team. Um, so that that's a really big, big, big issue that Bangalore have had. I, I also think it's been linked to that, but without having a kind of really, really clear, clear strategy, so players' positions have, have, have chops and change and move up and down, and and the kind of role given to batting and bowling has, has shifted massively. You know, we've seen Bangalore go from having two overseas fast bowls to having none and stuff. So there's not which obviously has a huge knock-on effect for everyone else in the team. So that's that's a really important issue. I just I just think too often it's come to a crunch moment and players have not really had the experience that they should in that exact position. So you, yeah, you see so much shifting up and down and and that that's been a really big problem and I think, you know, possibly a bigger problem for me is actually they've gone all in on batting historically and you need five good bowlers to win 220 and and Chennai have had they've had good bats as well but they've had really really good bowlers and they've you know they've had a more balanced team and if if you go all on batting so I think I think this season Bangalore were due to spend a third of their income on uh, AB and Virat Kohli obviously two fantastic players but we but that to me suggests an imbalance and and they haven't that leaves less money for for bowlers and they haven't spent very well and they have spent money on bowlers so they haven't had a really really clear clear plan i also would point to chennai being very smart exploiting home advantage uh, playing at home for me is a massive thing that teams do not try and exploit enough so if you can win you know in the ipl you generally need seven wins maybe eight to, to reach the knockout stage so if you win five of your seven home games you need to win only two or three games on the road so you you dominate at home that just sets you up massively and chennai with that wicket often you know helping helping spin and they've you know developed a smart strategy around that not only that the spin models they've bowled but they've they've signed very well local indian players who are good players against spin so they've, they've been very smart in their roles whereas bangalore with generally actually with a, with flatter wickets it's hard to have a big big home advantage because playing off that wicket is kind of kind of the norm in most places so it's so you, you go there as a visiting team you're not there's no kind of big, big surprises or big shocks there. So Bangalore haven't really hit any home bunch at all, whereas China have had a, a huge one. Um, but that, I think, speaks to why the flaws in Bangalore's strategy. Uh, I think valid points all uh, as you put forward. Um, another aspect of the, you know, maybe the, uh, that explains the gulf between the two teams is, uh, is coaching. Um, what role has coaching played, uh, you know, with the two teams? We see that Stephen Fleming has been a consistent figure in the CSK setup pretty much since he stopped playing cricket for them. Uh, RCB, on the other hand, they've gone through their, you know, their, uh, a good number of coaches. Vittori was there for a while. Uh, you even had uh, an interesting story about Ashish Nehra uh, coming in as bowling coach and the kind of uh, role that he played. So I guess my question is twofold. A, you know, would you like to elaborate a little bit on the Ashish Nehra story? B, what is what is the role that coaching has to play in in T20 cricket, and why have we why are we seeing this uh, you know this uh, this 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 carousel of coaches in RCB? So on on Nara, so people we we talked to, uh, well, people Freddie talked to actually, but but that was what we heard about Nara is was he was kind of involved on the sidelines, that he was kind of di di directing 
he was influencing things from the sideline, but in a in a way that didn't seem conducive to kind of building a wider t- team team spirit. Um, and he seemed to have quite potentially a negative a negative influence, maybe having having too too much power being leaned on a little bit 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 too much, um, and not always kind of giving enough support to, to fringe players. Um, but on coaching in general, I think yeah, the role of Steve, Stephen Fleming and Emma Stoney have a great rapport. They they built up. Um, and they they have a kind of a sixth sense. They know what to do. You know, people like Fleming and Doe, they they know so much about T20. They don't, they don't need to kind of dig uber deep into the data. They 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 just get it. Um, and and because they've been together for so long, again, they, they've got that real stability. So we saw, you know, when Chennai came back to the IPL in 2018, they were dad's army. Everyone was kind of mocking them for being too old. Well, they go on and win the tournament, and in 2019, they, they you know they lose by one run in the final to Mumbai. So, so they knew exactly the players they wanted, and they were looking at those roles so clearly. Um, again, if you, if you if you have a kind of stability at the top, that means that lends itself to looking for very specific roles, which means you're not just getting a kind of shopping list of he's a good player, he's a good player. You're actually targeting players who have skill sets that you need, very particular skill sets. Um, and Chennai have had real stability amongst their overseas players as well, which means they know exactly the types of Indian players they want to fit alongside them. Bangalore, it's been all, all a bit more more chaotic. Um, and I think that speaks to, you know, we talked to Brendan McCullum and he says, you know, you need, uh, obviously he's played he's played for both teams and he says you need an all-in mentality. That's so important. And he was saying, if you don't have stable team selection, that it's very hard to build that mentality. And that's a real reason why teams are less successful. On that point, uh, uh, Tim, uh, what is it that makes a team successful? Now, if I would draw parallels with the the English football team, uh, they have one of the biggest uh, football leagues in the world. Uh, India has the biggest uh, T20 league in the world. But both of them have won the World Cup only once. They are not, I mean, considering the fact that we have the biggest league, we should be winning more T20 World Cups, not just the first one. We... We should expect more. Would that be a fair point? Yeah, that is a fair point. Um, but equally, India consistently got to the, the knockout stages, which is, you know, there's a lot of randomness in T20. So I, you'd expect them to have won one more IPL. Oh, sorry, one more uh, World T20. But, you know, they, they are still consistently getting to the knockout stages. If you get to a semi-final competition, generally, you haven't done a huge amount wrong. Um, so I, it's, yeah, it, International T20 is not as effective as, as it should be. Basically, you know, we should, World Cup should be every every couple of years, in my view. But also, bilateral T20 means almost nothing. Um, so it's actually quite hard to evaluate who are the best international teams. You know, West Indies clearly they won two World T20s. They, they're a standout team. But we saw with Pakistan, you know, they won they won 20, 29 games out of thirty three. But it's all just kind of bilateral games, so it kind of passed unnoticed. Um, and that's a kind of odd thing where. Although T20 is the most popular format of the game and actually gets the best crowds even at international level, the kind of understanding of the international T20 teams and the basically respect given to the format is way less than the, than the other two. So it's it's actually quite hard to, to kind of properly evaluate international T20 teams. I think um, it's a fair point. Uh, I think we have a long way to go when it comes to international T20 cricket. And maybe we'll find out in the coming years as uh, teams look to prioritize, uh, you know, economics and more economically or financially uh, beneficial formats of the game. Um, you know, looking at roster construction, because in the IPL, you've mentioned multiple times in the book, 
the, the, the game might not just be won on the field. The game would be won even in the auction room because the thought process that goes in in developing a team for, or creating a team from scratch, especially given that the format kind of re, the, the, the teams essentially reset every few years in the IPL, roster construction is the most integral part of, of uh, the, you know, the path your team is going to take. So now we've come a long way from you know, rich owners throwing money around at big names where they, it didn't make sense and it just didn't fit. But you still see every year certain players who you don't expect to get paid, getting paid. You look at uh, Yuvraj Singh, multiple years where he went as the highest paid Indian player. And uh, in, in some cases, the team which released him ended up trying to bid for him at, those, at a higher price than they released him at the previous year. So the logic there still seems to be a little bit wonky. Uh, yeah. Especially when you look at uh, Jayadev Unodkar or Yuvraj Singh, why is that? Is there is there still a, a far a long way to go for us in terms of roster construction and discipline in the auction? Yeah, there in general there has been a lot of progress, so there is still somewhere to go. And the reason there is is often owners want to be really really involved and they want to pick their their favorite players and and stuff. So you, if you don't have that, then you can get to maturity a lot quicker but if you have owners saying you know we want that guy we even saw on the um, Netflix documentary on Mumbai Indians you know the owners basically say we want both Pandya brothers that's essential and they're both very good cricketers but I'm just saying if you're going to an auction kind of feeling you have to for external reasons sign players that's sign a certain player that's not always conducive to best strategy but but broadly speaking I'd say there's there's sort of there's three keys to kind of nailing the auction and being smart you know, number one is Getting the right mix of batting and, and bowling. And so clearly you need a strong, a strong bowling attack. You need to think how how are we getting our 20 overs with no weak, weak, weak links? That's essential. How are we also having a, a range of bowlers who can deliver good matchups? And and the fits of that is, you know, a range of a range of batsmen. So you have batsmen who fulfill different roles. I think that's that's absolutely essential. The second is if you can have a, a good scaling system so you can get players who are basically undervalued by other teams. So look at how Mumbai benefited from, from Jasper Brumra, you know, signing him him early, identifying him. They basically had him for a few years under his real market value. Again, Colton Knight Riders, we talk about their auction strategy, you know, them signing Andre, Andre Russell, Colty, for example, both at, at low prices and being able to build a, a team around them. them. Um, and, and that actually means if you sign good players for less than their value, you then have have more money that you can then outbid for the players. Everyone knows it's good, you know, ABWs, Rashid Khan, whatever. Um, and then I think the, the the third key, which, you know, I'd say is almost the most important of all, is most domestic leagues are won by domestic players. So you've got to have a strong local core of players. And again, we go back to Chennai v Bangalore. Chennai have a very good local core and they have players, you know, like S. Bajanath would be a good example. You know, he's not an Indian T20 player. But they, they, but you need players like that who can perform a good role in a very specific way. So if you have good local players and you're and you're bringing the best out of them, you know, putting them where they're best, which means they can, you know, they can really show the best. They might not have every skill, but if they're very good at a certain thing, well, that can be a very, very useful role. So if you have, you have good, good domestic core, it's absolutely essential because then you have the overseas players as kind of the icing. I think on the cake, but if you need them to do all the heavy lifting, as it's sometimes been the case again with Bangalore, that can just it just creates too much pressure. So yeah, so I would always say actually, potentially if you spend a bit more of your money on domestic players and a bit less on overseas, that's not a bad strategy at all because the quality of domestic players that's that falls off a, a cliff much quicker than the quality of overseas players because there's so many more 
um, overseas players available and only a few allowed to get picked up because of the rules. Um, whereas if you're going all in overseas players, you can end up picking two or three players in the 11 who are kind of make, you know, they shouldn't really be in the team. And that's, yeah. that's a real drag. You, you, you can obviously win, win T20 games with a few weaker players in your team, but to get to you know, the knockouts of, of the IPL, if you have two or three players who are weak in the opposition target, it makes itself almost impossible. You're relying on miracles, you know, from your, your creme de la creme. You obviously, we see with, with Bangalore again, you know, 2016, they get to the final because, both Vera Kohli and AB Villas have phenomenal seasons. And, you know, if any, and even then they had to win six straight games to get to the knockouts. And that was relying on those two to form miracles. And when they returned to still fantastic players, but a bit more, you know, a bit more normal, it all kind of falls apart for them. Um, I think you made a good point on uh, owners uh, driving selection. Uh, when I look at American sports leagues, uh, you know, they have a very defined power structure or decision-making structure, at least the best performing teams do, wherein, uh, you know, the coach's job is squarely to run game day tactics, ga- game day selection, etc. Whereas, uh, you usually have a general manager who, uh, who sits at the top of your front office who is focused completely on roster construction and team, team building. Um, so, you have very delineated roles. Do you see that happening in the IPL eventually? Oh, I think it's amongst the best, most successful teams in the auction already is happening. You look at Kolkata Knight Riders, who've been very good in the auction. They have a very clear strategy. I think they were one of the first teams, maybe the first, to have their analyst on the on their auction table as well. So they have a clear strategy and they've they've delegated power in a, in a smart way. And then more teams are doing that sort of thing. But yeah, you still do have those external pressures from from the top. Um, but clearly, the more professional your list management can be, the better, the better for, your, for your team. Because, you know, if you can, it's basically about, because the point of T20 leagues, they're like American sports league, and that they're basically set up with competitive balance in mind. You know, you're not just, you have a minimum spend and a maximum spend. And in the IPL, many other leagues have a draft. So actually, everyone's spending exactly the same amount in a, a snake draft. So, you know, in theory, every team kind of goes in equally. Um and as I said, you know, you know who the really, really good everyone knows who the really, really good players are. So you need a really the way to be to be smart is find those players who are undervalued and and just build a system that's more than the sum of its, its parts. And I think you need a really good strategy to do that. I think the kind of what we saw in the, the first IPLs when you just kind of go in and you kind of buy your your favorite players and say, oh, we've got four openers and no new ball bowlers. That's I mean, yeah, we've come a long way from that. I think um, long we've come a long way from that, and we have a long way to go still among some of the IPL teams. Yeah, um, the- yeah, yeah. Um, you know, looking beyond just the IPL, we've seen the, a lot of new leagues mushrooming across the across the cricketing landscape. Now, you know, it's it's yet to be determined of all of these leagues are going to be financially viable. Um, do you? Do you foresee in the future that there will be some kind of consolidation either in terms of bigger leagues buying teams in smaller leagues or simply smaller leagues just not being able to be sustainable financially? Yeah, so we have a chapter in the book on this called kind of survival of the fittest. And, you know, everyone, you know, is like, yeah, let's make our own league. It'll be great. It'll be an easy way of making money. But actually, if you look, you know, most leagues and most teams throughout the 20 have lost money. And even took the IPL, you know, actually until 2018, and it's big new broadcasting deal, but all teams to be consistently in, in profit. So it's very hard to turn a profit on leagues. And that's why we saw, you know, like the Global League in South Africa, that was cancelled before the first ball. The Euroslam in League in Europe 
um, was meant to t- start last year. That was also counter for financial issues. We've seen players being paid late in the Canadian League, for example. You see lots of, you know, the lots of leagues have had big, big financial problems. Um, and clearly, I think teams have been, uh, boards have been naive in, in kind of the economics of, of the of kind of setting up a league and, and how, how how that can work. So what I envisage, I think, I think the IPL will get bigger. I think it will expand by, you know, a couple of teams, another two or three weeks, probably from 2023. Um, I think you know, we might see more IPL teams invest overseas. So we know that KKR already invest in Trimbega Night Riders. They actually invested in a team in the ill-fated South African League, but they've said they're interested in investing in 100 potentially if, if, that, if that's allowed. I think we'll see more IPL teams in, investing over, overseas. Um, I think... I think other leagues might, I think there is room for other leagues, but they need to kind of have more realistic ambitions, you know. So for me, if you're building a domestic, if you're building a league, most of your interest needs to come from domestic uh, cricket watchers for it to be viable. So why not just have a league? You have two really good overseas players per team, but you don't, rather than having four or five and things like overseas coaches, I mean, overseas coaches can cost quite a lot of money and no one really watches with all due respect, no one watches T20 for the coaches. And so obviously IPL, you need to have the best coach in the world because but if you're building that, the Eurostam had loads of kind of some big name foreign coaches. And it's just like, what, what's the kind of point of that? So you just need to be more realistic in the economics. I think, so I think there is, you know, just right, you see loads of leagues in basketball and, and football. I think there, there is room for a lot of leagues and maybe more than we have today, but there's not room for so many leagues trying to become big franchise leagues, you know. So, you know, Leagues in smaller countries should just say, oh, this is our audience is our, our local market, basically. So rather than, you know, the kind of fantasy of we need to have, you know, loads of, we're going to get loads of fans from India, which is just not going to happen, at least while you don't have Indian players and that's not going to change anytime soon. And I think, yeah, that's how to make leagues work. So the, the CPL is a good example, which is, po- you know, possibly the, the model for leagues in smaller markets. So one of the interesting things they've done, so they experimented with trying to play games really early in the morning for the Indian market and they found they were actually they weren't getting many people watching from India and they were just and it was putting off locals because it was the atmosphere was was terrible and people were working and stuff so they couldn't they couldn't watch. And um, so they actually then moved to playing in the evening, making it a more unabashed a Caribbean product. They've actually reduced the number of overseas players because they figured actually, you know, people watching Ghana or Trinidad, rather than the kind of fourth or fifth overseas player who probably is not going to be a big name. They'd rather see a young local kid coming through. And I think there's a, some really good lessons there about how to make a, a league work when you don't have the benefit of you know, the Indian market. Yeah, I think um, a, a, lot of, a lot of leagues or a lot of cricket boards in general have re- rely on the, the value of the Indian rights being sold. Um, it's, but it's, it's interesting to see... Uh, we, it's interesting to see how... Um, uh, you know, some of them have been able to make it work even without, you know, without the, the Indian viewership. Uh, just, just one final question on the future of T20 leagues. Um, as the IPL continues to grow and expand and take up more real estate in the cricketing calendar, do you see it edging out or pushing out some uh, international sports more, more and more from the cricketing window? Uh, could we see, you know, IPL perhaps take up four to five months of the year and international cricket kind of go the way of uh, you know international football. Yeah, that's it's a really really good good, good question. I, I I think like so if you look at at cricket amongst all sports before T20 cricket was very unusual. Um, 
in so little of, of its fan interest and its revenue coming from domestic matches, you know, only a tiny, tiny share. You know, someone in Indian broadcasting told me that Indian domestic cricket was only worth a couple of percent of the total broadcasting of Indian cricket. And now with the IPL, the IPL is now worth 70, 71% of Indian cricket's broadcasting revenue, only 29% from Indian bilateral uh, home, home matches. So that shows the extent of the shift. So we are, the sport like worldwide is under a, a big shift in terms of, you know, now we probably from sort of five or 10% of total revenue worldwide coming from domestic matches now probably 50% does. And that number is only going to rise. Football is about 80%. You know, maybe that's where cricket ends up. Maybe it ends up somewhere between where it is now and there. But certainly, you know, in five, 10 years time and COVID might accelerate this more because it will make international travel harder and, and more costly as well. Um, so certainly in five, 10 years time, I think club cricket will become an even more important part part of cricket. So sometimes actually when we talk about the tension in T20 being, you know, T20 v Test and ODI cricket, well, that, that's, that's, that's fine, that, that's true. But maybe a bigger tension is actually between club cricket and nation v nation international cricket. Um, and that... Yeah, again, they will see that will create a lot more, a lot more tension. I, I, in some ways, I see the IPL as being like the NBA of, of cricket. And by that, I mean it's a domestic league, but also kind of the world's league, and it has basically monopoly in all the world's best players, and and actually, you know, huge amount of fan interest for it from around the world. I think the IPL has actually not tapped into that potential as much as it could in terms of growing its brand overseas. And I really see huge potential for the IPL, and not only in more teams investing in teams other countries, but also, you know, exhibition matches, even some regular season games, if the season was to expand being played in, in other countries. If, if you did that, you know, potentially imagine some IPL games being played in in New York or, or something, you know, massive, massive potential there. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think that's something that we'll, we'll see. And yeah, so it's interesting. Lots of people say, you know, this is regressible for cricket because of the foundation of cricket is international cricket. And I can see that argument, but there's actually, you know, T20 has democratised the sport, you know. Thanks, you know, Sandeep Lamachani, no one would have heard of him if we lived in a world where test cricket was everything and you had to play one of the main test nations. Rashid Khan as well, you know, Afghanistan's rise probably to test nations actually probably wouldn't have happened without T20 as well. So there's been lots of, of pauses for the game. And I think, you know, my, my, my dream would probably be the IPL has a bit more vision and follows the NBA in building academies around the world and stuff. And actually we can see the, the, the IPL driving cricket to become a, more global sport and in the funny way the economics of the sport are so skewed that if you move to a model of club cricket becoming more important then when you have international events which are you know a lower share of the, of the calendar then actually you know less rich nations will all have all their best players available anyway um, and then and that, that in some ways the kind of diminishing international cricket might actually help it when it comes to to events i don't know there's, there's a lot lots of things going on but with when you know we're in a, a time of flux but um, you know, I think the next decade even more probably will change than in the previous decade. Uh, I think there's a lot to look forward to in seeing how the game evolves in the next few years. Um, Tim, thank you so much for uh, you know taking the time out to speak with us, and uh, we're looking forward to you know hopefully reading, catching up with more of your articles online. And uh, everyone, the book is Cricket 2.0. Uh, go out and read it. We did, and we really enjoyed it. <laughs>